Welcome to the 14th episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. In this podcast, we will speak with some of the leading voices in the field of inclusive entrepreneurship and learn from the best practices to apply in our own communities as practitioners. Today, we'll be speaking with Elaine Rasmussen. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you, David. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Elaine, tell us a little bit about your organization. So, Social Impact Strategies Group, we call ourselves an Enterprise and Finance Innovation Center. We have essentially three buckets of work. The first bucket of work is consulting and facilitation, specifically around inclusive economic development, social impact design and implementation, and racial equity design and implementation. So we typically like to tell people, once you've gone through your DEI training, then you can call us. We don't do that. (laughs) But what we do do is help you now, once you've had the training, figure out what is the next thing that needs to be done within the organization, whether it's your policies, practices, or procedures that need to change. The second bucket of work is we do investor education and entrepreneur education. Our investor education is focused on aligning, helping people align their values with their money beyond their philanthropy. So what does investing with a social or economic justice lens look like across different asset classes? And then with our entrepreneurs, we're really talking about, one, how do you speak the language of investors? Uh, and how do you move from single operator to CEO? Once you get past your proof of concept, once you get past you're making revenue, you've been doing that for a while, now how do you switch from being reactive to proactive? And what is the infrastructure within your business that you need to develop and to make your business sustainable and to grow, especially for black and brown uh, entrepreneurs? The third bucket of work is we do an annual conference called Connect Up that is focused on intentional relationship building across different uh, ecosystems and cross-pollinating networks. So what we like to say is we are connecting underestimated entrepreneurs, investors, as well as the entrepreneur ecosystem across the state of Minnesota. So this includes rural folks, uh, white and non-white, as well as, um, but a predominant focus, which is on black and brown entrepreneurs here across Minnesota. So those are the three buckets of work that we do, and we're really, really excited. We've been uh, expanding and growing, and even as even despite COVID, we've been able to expand our services to folks. Wow, that's a lot of work that you're doing. Congratulations. Uh, let me ask you, what is the inspiration? What started all of this, and um, how does that inform the decisions you've made to help connect entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a great question. So where this really started was back in 2012. uh, I was working in philanthropy and I was starting to get involved in impact investing. And I went to a conference. uh, It was actually a pre-conference that was talking about program-related investing and mission-related investing. And I'd been working in the space for a while and I wanted to make sure that I kind of understood exactly what those things were. So I attended this pre-conference, which was a PRI MRI 101. And when I walked in the room, I was struck so starkly because in the room, which had about 50 people, there were five women in the room. And this is 2012. This is not that long ago. There were five women in the room. There were two people of color. 
It was an Asian woman and myself. So that emotionally and visually struck me right off the bat. And as people started to introduce themselves, they were introducing themselves. My name is so-and-so. I work at so-and-so. And I have X amount of dollars assets under management. And as everybody introduced themselves, I started to do a back of the envelope calculation of how much assets were in that room, being represented in that room. And it quickly turned into billions, if not trillions of dollars. And I was struck on a personal level of how did this chocolate chip girl from Hollywood, California, end up in this room with all of this wealth? It was a really out-of-body experience um, to be in such a room with, I, I'd never been in a room with that much money in the room before. And then I was also struck as the conversation continued, as they were talking about the impact that they were making with the investments that they were making, that it was clear that they were actually doing harm to some of these communities that that they're under the auspices of doing good and making a market rate return. Not that that's a bad thing, but um, they were all, I was also just struck that they really had no connection to the communities that they were investing in and really didn't know what they were talking about and the implications of what they were talking about. And for myself, I had had a finance background years and years and years ago, so I could understand the language that they were speaking, but I also understood the language of community and, and what community wants and what community needed. And I thought, hmm, this could be a place for me to be a great translator between community and economic development and the language of the investors. Not to say that the language of the investors was, act, was correct, um, definitely don't want to put that out there, but the fact that there needed to be a translator to, for, for across those two different, very different lexicons around what does it mean to have the community driving the conversation, making the decisions and at the table in which this money as a resource or an asset was being leveraged. So that just began my journey of this aha moment that I have a unique gift of being able to talk across different languages, to be able to talk across different communities. And then as I started working on that, I started to see that oh, well, no one's really talking to the entrepreneurs. So there was an education that needed to happen with investors on how to do their work differently. But I also needed, there needed to be some conversations or some education with entrepreneurs of how they can show up better to optimize their results when they did get in front of an investor or an investment committee. And so that's what really spawned when I left my organization in 2016, that really, I, I really wasn't planning to start an organization, but I kept seeing how stark the gaps were and how black and brown people were not in these conversations, were not in these rooms where this plethora of capital was circulating. And the fact that people were talking about people of color um, as, as if they weren't around um, this very kind of patriarchal, colonistic, we're going to make these decisions for them because we know better. And um, that really catalyzed six months after I left my, my philanthropic job of me starting Social Impact Strategies Group. Wow, that is so powerful. So <laughs> let me try to take this conversation one level deeper. Uh, talking about these barriers to entry and you talked specifically around capital, but you know, we see this across the board. Uh, what are some on-ramps that you think we have to have in place and we can focus on capital for this conversation, or we can you know, talk more generally, 
But what are some on-ramps that you've seen that's worked effectively uh, since then? And also you can talk about some of the work you're doing in that space. Uh, but I would love to kind of get your thoughts uh, just a level deeper on, you know, what what is the problem here and how do we fix it? Yeah, and it's such a big question. And what part of the challenge is, is different kinds of businesses need different kinds of things. So I'll give you a couple of examples. When we talk about supplier diversity, so lots of cities, lots of large corporations, they are adopting or have adopted these supplier diversity um, plans or objectives or goals. However, they're also, as part of that, and I'm not to say that this is wrong, they also require maybe for a construction company, a million dollar bond, right? Which is the insurance that you need to carry if you're going to be taking on these jobs. Well, who's got the money for, you know, a million dollar bond? Like they want the job, but they can't even bid on the job because they can't even meet the requirements to be able to, to, to get qualified to do the job. So there are barriers that are set up and let's, that's a big capital, you know, a, a, a business that is very capital intensive, right? You have to buy all the raw materials ahead of time before you can even start the project. And if you don't have a line of credit, which most of the, the BIPOC or black and indigenous uh, people of color businesses won't have, they don't have collateral because they've been disenfranch systematically disenfranchised. So they're set up to fail outside the, outside the gate. Now that's a capital intensive uh, business. Let's take it down to maybe a smaller size businesses. That's maybe professional services, or maybe it's, um, uh, you know, a, a food business. Uh, the same theory sort of the same theory applies. And that is, if you some of this, the what's happened with the city contracts with small businesses and, and black and brown businesses is that they're not getting paid timely. Um, it could be 60 to 90 days before you get paid. And so if we are hamstringing people from growing their business because they can't even get paid on the contract that they actually executed on. Many of these businesses are working from from very similar to our the rest of our community paycheck to paycheck or they're managing they're managing their business off of sales and not managing their business off of cash flow. So these are just a couple of the challenges looking at a very large capital intensive business to just a regular street main street business of like how the system is even set up. We really need to change our policies and our practices around recognizing what are the sorts of things that need to change in order to create the, the, the diversity of our suppliers that we're actually looking for. But the other part of it is I find that, uh, particularly here in Minnesota, all of our focus is on startups. We have a super strong startup community, even our state legislature, which I've been critical of to them directly about the whole focus on startups. And I said, okay, this is great that we have this great startup community. We've got capital for startup. We've got accelerators for startups. We have incubators for startups. What happens then? Once they get past the startup phase, we have what I have called an entrepreneur cliff. And for black and brown businesses, that typically starts around year two, year three, and all the way up to year 10 of the business. And for, for us, I want to be clear, like these businesses have a clear product that is sellable. Like they have sales. Um, their, their, their challenge is, They've been in they're in survival mode and they're reactive mode. 
And so flipping that switch of their mindset of like, okay, let's plan. What does it look like to plan? But if you have a personal life that's built on survival and constantly reacting, you're going to take that into your business. So we need to do better care about this sort of case management for these entrepreneurs, that it's not just about the capital. It's not just about, a lot of times it's about what capital can bring you. But then it's also a matter of the delivery of service. So I was at a conference a couple of years ago and it was a bunch of business service providers and the conversation was well how do we how do we help more businesses what do we need to do especially women women were not using the services of business service providers and I said well we don't have that problem most of our entrepreneurs are women and women of color I said but here's what we do we offer our programming at night. We offer our programming on the weekends. We always provide childcare at all of our events, whether it's our conference or whether it's our programs, our workshops, and we always feed them. And to which the response was by these other folks who were much larger than my organization, had much bigger budgets than my organization, their response to me, and one of them was a, an organization right here in the Twin Cities, big organization, a multi-million dollar budget. And their response was, well, we've tried that, but we found it difficult to find people who will work on nights and weekends. That was their, like, we, we, we couldn't do, we couldn't solve that problem. So we're not doing it, <laughs> but you're sitting here asking the question of how can you do that? And so I said, well, when we put out a job description, we put on the job description some nights and some weekends. We don't require our team to work every night and we don't require them to work every weekend, but we put that on the job description that some nights and weekends. And I said, I've never had a problem keeping staff. I've never had, I have a problem of, I don't have enough positions for the people who want to work in our organization. <laughs> That's my problem. So I think, you know, the long story long is, is we need to be more thoughtful about centering the entrepreneur. And I think a lot of times our business service providers center themselves and what is easier and easiest for them. And what I say to that is besides parenting, entrepreneurship is the hardest thing that a person can do. So as as service providers and people who have resources, it is our job to make it easier for them, not easier for us. I love it. I love that story. And I think that human element of providing childcare and providing food and doing it in the evenings, uh, those are all things that can be game changers, right? Um, especially if you are a single parent uh, mm-hmm. at home and you have to make a choice between taking care of your kid or showing up to a meetup that could actually help you with your business. Those are all barriers that are real. And uh, it's interesting you bring that up because I've actually had people on our platform talk about those challenges uh, to starting a business or even being able to find resources. Uh, So that's fascinating. Uh, Let me shift topics and ask you about uh, two recent occurrences that were both really big events themselves and uh, want to get your thoughts on how they have kind of influenced some of the focus back to supporting uh, underrepresented uh, entrepreneurs uh, and uh, one of that is George Floyd's death and um, want to get your perspective on uh, how that is. That tragedy uh, provided a silver lining in kind of bringing the focus back. And then, of course, uh, you know, COVID-19, um, how have you pivoted and 
How have you seen organizations that you work with pivot successfully uh, from that? Sure. So the impact of George Floyd is still to be seen. So there's been a lot of rallying of in people in corporations, particularly here in the Twin City and larger national and multinational companies like the JP Morgan chases and things of that nature about, oh, okay, oh, oh, there's black people. And it's, I will just tell you as somebody who is 50 years old, seeing all these commercials with black and brown people, it's a little weird after spending my whole life not seeing black and brown people reflected in advertising. It's almost like, for, you know, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so now it like weirds me out. <laughs> then I'm I'm like seeing such diversity in advertising. I mean, it's great, but it's it's really bizarre. I mean, I've lived my most of my life not seeing myself in 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 television, not seeing myself in um, not only uh, advertisements but just in programming, right? Um, and and so it's been a little strange. I mean, I'm I'm happy, but it, it was it's been really weird. It's a little out of body experience. But George Floyd it has, has sparked something that I don't know could have been sparked, one, in any other place or at any other time. So I think to your question about COVID, the fact that we could not escape what happened and seeing what happened by going to work the next day. So I will just tell you, I live blocks from where, um, uh, um, what was the gentleman's name uh, in Los Angeles that was uh, uh, beaten? Rodney King. I, I've lived not too far from where that beating happened. And that was now, what, 25, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and nothing changed. I, I, I've been able to witness so many other Black people being murdered on social media and nothing changing. And I think what made this different, one, was because everybody was at home and had to keep watching it over and over and over again. They didn't have the escape of going back to work or going back to their regular lives. Um, it, people had to sit with it. I think the other difference that made this, this such a, I think a global phenomenon is that it happened here in Minnesota. These things have been happening in other communities, particularly predominantly black communities. So it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, it happened. But the fact that it happened here in the Twin Cities, and I feel like there is this um, uh, unspoken rule that, you know, w w Minneapolis or the Twin Cities, like we've, we're so progressive and we've got all this stuff figured out. And the fact that something like that could happen here, which I think is kind of this um, utopia, like people look at the Twin Cities as like this utopia. I don't think people say that specifically, but we get a lot of accolades of like how wonderful everything is, is here. And the fact that this happened in the Twin Cities, I think shook people to their core that if it could happen here in the Twin Cities, where this, there's this perception of things are so wonderful and so great, then where is it going to happen next? And that this is this is not this 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 is this is something this is something to be reckoned with. So I think all of that might 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 as far as I'm concerned, the jury is still out on these initiatives and these efforts. I think that some of them are opportunistic. I am hoping that that is not the case, but I am cautiously optimistic because it's really going to be the proof is in the pudding. You know, a couple of years ago, we saw a big infusion of capital into like black and brown 
Um, you know, there were some some major brokerage companies that uh, capital companies that were wanting to invest in black and brown people, but the fund manager was still a white guy, right? And um, so, what are we really changing? If you are going and if you are not looking for fund managers of color, if you're not looking for fund managers of business, which by the way, fund managers of color and and female fund managers actually outperform their white counterparts on about a 12% average. So all this thing about even with new fund managers, they outperform their cohort, their coworkers or their colleagues that are in the same sort of um, uh, um, uh, tenure in doing fund management. But if we're going to say that we're going to do these, these big um, investments and then the same people who are part of the problem are, are doing the investing, how does that work? <laughs> so that's what I have to say about the impact of George Floyd. As it relates to COVID and how our company pivoted, I think the big, most important thing that and I was just telling one of my staff members this the other day is having a plan. And this goes back to how we started this conversation. A lot of times businesses don't have plans and they don't pay attention to the signals that are coming. They explain them away, they rationalize them away, or they use the excuse of we're too busy to plan. And I was just facilitating a conversation last week where I, uh, the, the, the folks that we were working with were, were saying that they're like, well, we, there's, you know, it's, we got all this work to do and we have to do all this work. And I said, and I used the analogy of the Indianapolis 500, which if you're not familiar, it's a car race. And I believe that the objective is they have to go 200 laps and with the best time. And I said, here's the thing about the Indy 500, every single car in that race has to make a pit stop. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter what the car is, it doesn't matter who the driver is, everybody needs to stop in the pit stop. <laughs> and that's because you have to if you want to finish the race. And so this the person who I was talking to in this in this uh, client with this client, they were like, "Yeah, but, you know, but we still have all this work to do." And I said, "Okay, let's play this analogy all the way till it's natural end. What would happen if you never stopped in the pit stop?" And the person replied, "Well, I wouldn't finish the race." You blow a tire, you blow your engine, you might blow a gasket, um, you wouldn't finish the race. And I said, exactly. You need to stop and think and plan. And sometimes that means you're going to have to step back for a minute. Um, and this organization just happened to be a nonprofit. And I said, well, you know, I get I get all of that. But how long they, they deal with homelessness? I said, how long has homelessness been around? And they're like, for a long time. And I said, you are not going to solve homelessness. <laughs> uh, and you taking a day off to do planning with your team is not going to, you are not going to break. There's not going to be a, a slew of homeless people who are going to come in the door. Um, but if you don't stop and do that, you can't service the homeless people that you want to service. And the same thing goes with the business. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You need, there's, there, there's, I, I love businesses. When I see that they're closed for a month, they're like, we're going on vacation or we're closed for the, for this week. So we can work on our inventory. I love seeing that because they're taking care of the business and the business. If you have good relationships with your customers, if you have good relationships with the community, if good relationships with your partners and vendors, you can set that up proactively. And I think all of that really has helped us. We're We've been very transparent with all of our vendors, all of our partners, all of our clients, and people are more, far more forgiving than I think we give them credit for. And some people are not. And you know what? Maybe those are people you shouldn't be doing business with anyway. I absolutely love it.
uh, you're so well spoken, Elaine. Uh, it's just a pleasure listening to you talk about some of these things that uh, you know. Uh, I think you've inspired me. I'm going to find a two day window and I'm going to kind of close shop and uh, do like a planning session before the end of this year. I think nice. um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's so relevant and and timely. Uh, let's talk a little bit more. I know I'm fascinated by this idea that, you know, if you want to create a fund for black and brown entrepreneurs, you can't just have uh, somebody who's not of color uh, be a part of that process because, you know, there needs to be that human element and there needs to be that uh, relationship and that connectivity and also some of that awareness. Um, and then also uh, the other point, which uh, I tell uh, people when, you know, when I talk about my team, I make diversity on my team, hiring people. I make it very intentional because uh, like you had talked about the stat about, you know, 12% better performance. I guarantee you that simply by having people who look and talk differently than you are automatically gives you a leg up. Uh, and a lot of studies have backed that uh, idea that diversity actually creates much better outcomes than uh, homogeneity or people uh, that talk and look just like you are, right? So that diversity is so important. Can you kind of expand a little bit on that just to kind of help uh, our practitioners on, you know, how do you uh, kind of create diverse panels? How do you create diverse boards? How do you create diverse, uh, uh, you know, working groups, et cetera, and, and the value of that? Because I think that's something that is spoken about every once in a while when you'll see like, you know, an all white panel, but really I see it all the time. And I kind of, it strikes me that people don't realize this more intuitively. Yeah, so there's I think there's two pieces to that. So one is I'm I'm not about diversity for diversity's sake, right? And and what I mean by that is listen, if you've got an all white panel and that's fine, do they know what they're talking about? <laughs> right? Um because you could also have a panel that's diverse. And I I use a phrase that that I, I I can't take credit for, but it's definitely common in the South where my family comes from. Not all skin folk are kin folk, right? And what that means is just because you have a brown person on the panel, as we have seen from some of our what's happening in our, our in our election cycle and and otherwise, like picking the brown person in a room doesn't mean they represent the brown people in the room. Right. And understanding and understanding the difference between those two. So being very cognizant of, of if you are bringing somebody of color or even any panel, like forget about the people of color. When you are putting a panel together, making sure that the people you are bringing on are values aligned. Like I just I my my one of my coworkers this morning was on a panel that was talking about normalizing black um um, black wealth. And the person was talking over another, it was a black guy and he was talking over another black guy and really just, you know, self-promoting himself. And it's like, okay, well, okay. So we had diversity on the panel, but that person totally discounted the other person who actually had something valuable to say and contribute to the conversation. So what I try to tell, especially white colleagues is Let's not let's not have diversity just for diversity's sake so you can check a box and say that you did that, but really think about what are the values that that person holds and is the values that that person holds reflective of the content that you want to put out there, right? And so that's what I mean by like not all skin folk are kin folk. I think the other side of this is that it's not easy. And especially if you don't have that network of people, you have to understand that when you go and ask a, a, particularly a black person, I won't speak on, on, on other races, but with black folks, 
there's a trust, there's a trust network. And I'm not going to tell somebody about inviting them to a panel if I don't trust you, I don't know you, I don't know what you stand for, because I'm now putting somebody in connection with you based off their trust in me. And so if you had a hard time um, trying to get quality um, uh, Black folks on a panel or in your organization, um, there may be because there's a grapevine and you may not have the best reputation in that grapevine, which means you need to work on your reputation with the grapevine, which means that you need to show up in different places and spaces that you may not have shown up in before. And you, it's not a one and done. Like I sit on a board and I'll tell the story really quickly. I sit on a board and uh, one of the, we have four locations and one of the locations is up north uh, in Northern Minnesota where we're by, uh, uh, we're, it, we're surrounded by um, uh, native nations. And so, um, and we work with uh, people with disabilities. And I said to the team, I said to the, the HR folks, I said, why don't we have more native people with disabilities working in our facility? And the answer was, well, we went to talk to them once and we went to talk to the tribe once and um, we didn't really get a response. And so we haven't gone back. And I said, okay, how many dates did you go on before you married your partner? Like if you, if you want to build a relationship with somebody, it's not a one and done. If you want to build a relationship with a community, you're going to have to invest in that community. And that means you're going to need to show up. If it's the native community, you need to show up to the powwows and you need to show up with your mouth shut. You just need to keep showing up so that they know like you're just not here to like pluck them, that you're actually wanting to build a relationship and you need to keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up. And it might take a year before somebody even says anything to you. But if it's important to you and you really want to expand and see how your work or your organization or your product or service can benefit that community sincerely and not transactionally, then it requires you to invest in it no different than you would a new friend, a partner, um, uh, any other kind of relationship, right? So it requires an investment and for you to be honest about whether or not that investment is worth it to you. Because if it's not, then don't start. Love it. Absolutely. I think a great point again. Uh, and, you know, I wish we could keep going on with this podcast, Elaine. I, I just love this. So maybe what I'll do is I'll bring you back uh, <laughs> for an update, you know, in a, in a couple of months when uh, uh, COVID's uh, hopefully, you know, in a different place. But uh, before I close, I wanted to uh, kind of ask you for two things. One, uh, you know, do you have some uh, parting words for uh, practitioners who might be trying to start out in ecosystem building are trying to become conveners themselves or uh, help with mm, help with the community. Uh, and then also the second part is how can people follow your work? How can they uh, connect with you on social media? Sure. Thank you. So the first question about my, my words for ecosystem builders, um, you're appreciated. <laughs> it's a thankless job. Infrastructure building is a thankless job. So you are appreciated and it's important and valuable and keep doing it as long as you can. Um, but also be unapologetic and be clear who you're serving, what you're doing. You don't have to do everything. You need to do what you do well. And so figure out what that is singularly and unapologetically. Um, so that's what I will say about that. As far as what we're working on, you can connect with us via 
website, our website, we have two websites. We have the connectupmn.com website and we have socialimpactnow.com website. You can follow us on Instagram, connect up. If you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm L Raspberry. Um, we also have, um, we're on Twitter, um, the same handles. Um, there's SISG underscore for uh, Twitter, and we're also on Facebook. So if you just type us in, you can find, you, you should be able to, to find us. If you can't, then you need to email me. <laughs> uh, well, good luck uh, with uh, the work you're doing, Elaine. You're doing some tremendous work, uh, and we're such big fans. So uh, keep the good work up. We'll bring you back in a couple of months to continue to pick your brain on a lot of these really uh important topics. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, David, and to all your audience. Really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Palmraj. Special thanks to Elaine Rasmussen for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Fritcher edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.